Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And holy moly, me oh my, we have more <laughs> patrons to shout out this week. Mamma mia. Ah. <laughs> so um, thank you so much to Nubedita and Jill of Trades for joining us over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. So not only are we so immensely and immeasurably grateful to you. We are yes, thank you. only 15 patrons away from that special oh my God. patron gift. So very excited. I woke up from a dream in which we had creative differences about its design. Uh-oh, so, am I fired? <laughs> no, that's not how it went in my dream. Oh, um, so okay. we got to get to work on that. But ah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So if you are a patron and you want that gift sent to you, please make sure your address info is up to date on the Patreon page, because that is the information we will be using. And I guess we better go ahead and crank out that design. I'm very excited. I'm, I'm excited too. Also, what I'm excited about is that we have a very, very special guest with us today. Joining us today is Dr. Danielle McDonald, who is an archaeologist specializing in the prehistory of Western Asia, and more specifically, the lithic technologies of that place and time. That's right. Three years in, we've finally got someone on to tell us about stone tools. <laughs> we did it. Yeah, so we're we're going to be doing a bit of hybrid interview, kind of back to school episode smushed together because we want to learn about Danielle's work and her path to anthropology and archaeology. But we also very much would like to be taught the basics of lithics. So we're going to shamelessly use this episode to do that. So thank you, Danielle, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you guys about lithics. Yay, lithics. I'm so excited to learn about lithics from you. Oh. Instead of being just going, what? I think it's a core. You hit it. So this is going to be better. Before you tell us about lithics, tell us about <laughs> you. Um, can you tell us a bit about your academic trajectory and what brought you to archaeology? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm probably one of those rare people that ever since I was a little kid, I really wanted to be an archaeologist. My uncle was a physical anthropologist and my aunt was a cultural anthropologist. They both taught at different universities in Chicago. And so I grew up with kind of anthropology around me all the time. And I'm from Toronto originally, and my parents used to take me all the time to the Royal Ontario Museum, which has these phenomenal Egyptology collections. And I just fell in love. Um, so ever since I was a little kid, I always used to tell people that I either wanted to be a paleontologist or an Egyptologist. And when I started going to university, I went to the University of Toronto for my undergrad and for my PhD and the University of Victoria for my master's. I just kept with archaeology the whole time. I just loved it so much. Wow. 
I've been, so I know, I know there's like a running theme of me being like, I've been there. I've been to the Royal Ontario Museum. This was like my first, my first international trip. We had a, my gifted program had a field trip and we went to Niagara Falls in Toronto for a couple of days. Um, and I remember the Egyptology section there. Um, and there like was, were some animal mummies that totally freaked me out. I did yeah. not have that, that same response that you did. <laughs> See, this is my future. Yeah, I saw the animal mummies. They had a human mummy as well. And I was like, this is what I want to do. This is the coolest stuff ever. I was just like, I need to lie down. (laughs) You know, honestly, that's your that's your response to a lot of museums, though, Amber. So for a lot um, of different reasons. Yeah, lots of that's that is that's amazing. But that's your sort of like. You so, like just so neatly wrapped up, lived just, and breathed. I did this thing. Anthropology. No, it's yeah. bizarre. One of the yeah. Ever since I was a kid, had a dream. Yeah. Just went for it. Great. Ah, see that everybody. <laughs> Go for your dreams. So, I mean, building on that. So, why stone tools? What first got you interested in lithics? Yeah, stone tools are definitely not the most um, glamorous part of archaeology particularly when you're a kid in a museum and you see mummies you're not really paying attention to the stone tools it wasn't until I started university and kind of got more into it that I realized how much I love prehistory first and foremost this idea of not really being able to know the past not having this written history but using material evidence to try to figure out how people lived it was such a such a mystery and such a puzzle and I loved that kind of exploration. Um, So I got really interested in deeper time as a result and had some really wonderful professors who um, studied lithics. And so they just kind of got me hooked. Do you have like a recollection of the first moment that you did something or learned something about lithic technology and you were just like, oh, this is amazing. I do remember learning a little bit about lithic technologies in lecture and thinking, this is the most boring subject I have ever heard. And it wasn't until I started volunteering in labs. I worked um, as an undergraduate volunteer in Professor Ted Banning's lab. And I actually worked for a graduate student at the time, uh, Lisa Mahar, who's now my co-director at Harana. I worked with her helping uh, do some analysis on her lithics. And it was when I was actually in the lab doing work Um, learning how to analyze tools as opposed to just seeing photos of lithics on, you know, old school slide projectors pre PowerPoint um, (laughs) that I realized how amazing they were and how much we could learn from stone tools. Oh, what a perfect segue. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is something that I'm so glad you're here to tell us about this because like, this is one of those (laughs) things that I always wanted to know more about, but anytime I tried to read anything, I was just like, Oh, like maybe don't put the descriptions up front. Like if you're, (laughs) or maybe it's up to me to just skip that part, but help me out here. So people make stone tools in different ways at different times and in different places throughout prehistory. Um, So are there general trends or common techniques across time and space? Um, or is, are there like a hundred ways to make, like, is everybody doing it their own way? Like, are there as many ways to make stone tools as there are people making them? Yeah. You know, the, the Paul Simon song, 50 ways to make your scraper. <laughs> it's one of the lesser known hits. <laughs> yeah. It's not a banger. Yeah. So is that, or is it just sort of, there's only so many ways that it can be done. There are some constraints both in the raw materials that people use, kind of just the natural properties of raw materials, the types of tasks people want to do with tools, and then also in kind of the 
the way people think about them. That said, I mean, there is a plethora of different ways that people can make and use stone tools. We do see really interestingly, though, we do see patterns in how people are making stone tools across the world, sometimes at roughly contemporaneous times, sometimes at very different times. So things like microliths, teeny tiny blades, we see popping up all over the place. We see them in Africa. We see them in uh, Southwest Asia. We see them in North America. We see them in Siberia. And it's not because there's cultural connection between these groups. It's because people at different times in different places are figuring out the same sorts of solutions to the problems that they're having. They're figuring out how to use the materials in their environment to answer what might be sort of similar questions for those communities, but um, not, but at different places and different times, if that, if that makes sense. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so does that speak to, I don't want to become like an evolutionary psychologist here, but like, does it speak to sort of like, we like humans have the capacity to do this and sort of like get to that point just by kind of setting in motion of, as we evolve, as we move, as we encounter, stress on populations or resources or whatever is it is it tied to that like or is it just a total coincidence that uh people in very different places that don't that aren't so it's not it's not cultural diffusion it's not like what like early researchers thought where it's like obviously a white man learned how to make a a core and everyone else learned how to do it from him like not like that level of of diffusion so it it really is sort of in like indigenous like autochthonous like sort of coming up with stuff and but it's the same-ish yeah absolutely and so you there's a lot I mean there's a lot of different ways people make some tools so it's not that everybody made microliths, for example, or everybody made Levelois-style points. But these very similar technologies are popping up in different places. And the things that we do or what people would do with microliths in many ways are actually very similar to the same types of tasks people might have done with Levelois points. So they're they're coming to different... People are coming to different conclusions. It's just sometimes people are coming to the same conclusion around the world. And I'll give actually a little plug for a friend, one of my colleagues, Briggs Buchanan here at Tulsa, um, about about two years ago, I guess it was now, maybe three years ago, published a co-edited volume kind of asking these questions. It's called Convergent Evolution in Stone Tools, and it's by MIT Press. And there's a whole bunch of papers in there that's kind of asking this question of why do we see similar technologies around the world um, in different places at different times? Is it about interaction or is it about something different? And in that volume, they're arguing really that it's about something different. It's about the constraints of raw material. It's about the um, the available options people have and the different ways that we can use um, lithics to answer certain sorts of questions. Okay. And does this extend to humans? To Okay. Not homo sapiens? Like does Ooh. this it, extend to like Neanderthal populations? Do we share technologies? We do share technologies. Sorry, like I've, I really have been waiting years to have someone <laughs> to like tell me about this. <laughs> I am also happy to be told. <laughs> we do share technologies across species too. What's happening kind of in Africa during the um, 
middle stone age, we start to get these prepared core technologies and the, the style of the way that these tools are being made in terms of um, the decision-making processes to make these particular types of points that we see during the middle stone age in Africa is very similar to what the level, uh, to what Neanderthals are making when they're making level law points in Europe. So we do see some sort of cross species lithic similarities. Oh, wow. So can we break this down even more? So like the, the very earliest stone tools that we see are, come from Africa. And it's basically, I mean, I it's the Oldowan and Lomequian. Those are the two very oldest ones, right? That's and it's basically someone smashing a rock to get a sharp edge, right? I, I saw this in, in 2001, a space. <laughs> yeah. The monoliths um, showed and, up. And, they- and then for a while, that's like, the way to stone tool. Then what happens? So the Oldowan technology developed when? For Oldowan, we're talking about 2.5-ish million years ago, but we now have tools even older, about 3.3 million years ago. So hominids have been making stone tools for a long time. And it's that's one of the kind of coolest things about it, right? Is that it's the most persistent style of technology that we have, this interaction with stone tools. And that's not to say a few million years ago, um, these hominids weren't also making amazing tools out of bone, amazing tools out of wood, amazing tools out of plant materials. They just don't preserve in the archaeological record. So the only glimpse of the material culture of these early um, communities that we have is really through the stone technology. So it's it's our only window into these deep times often. Okay. Thanks for pointing that out because it's something that like yeah, it makes sense that like if you have something that's easier to work with um, and doesn't like chew up your hands like while you're doing it, like maybe you would make that too. It's a bonus. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. for sure. I mean, there's no reason we have some early preservation of early wooden spears, right? So we know that these things exist, but as archaeologists, there's only it's only so much that we have access to, you know, only so much that preserves in the archaeological record. Yeah. Okay. So, sorry, I, I veered, I veered off course of, of your question, Anna. No, well, it was, so then once you get past the chunking pieces off a rock, then you move on to sort of more strategically chunking points off of a rock. That's exactly And then what happens? (laughs) So we move from technologies like Oldowan, where they were moving one or two flakes in order to maybe use the flakes, but also to use what we would call the chopper to maybe smash open bones to get marrow or to do other sorts of tasks. And then from there, we start to get things like hand axes. So it's still sort of focusing on the core itself as being the tool and removing flakes in order to shape the core. Again, those flakes should be used. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. To sharpen it, to maintain whatever sorts of um, shapes you're looking for. You know, with hand axes, we're really looking for something that's teardropped in shape. Um, and that's sort of how we classify hand axes. Sometimes they become more ovoid. Um, sometimes they're a little bit more pointy. Um, and then from there, we start to move to very different types of technologies. During the Middle Stone Age in Africa and um, in Europe for Neanderthal technologies, the Mousterian and Levallois, where the core itself isn't necessarily the tool anymore, but it's the flakes that are coming off are the target tool. And that's when you start to get a lot more preparation of the core to change its shapes so that you get very predictable flakes that are going to come off that you can then use for a wide variety of different tasks. Okay. So the core was once the tool and then it becomes less the tool and more the, the resource. The, exactly. The thing material. from what you make. 
Okay. Exactly. So you're not using yeah. you're not using a hand axe to make another tool. You're using it as the thing that you build the tool from. So with a hand axe, you could use that hand axe as a tool to do a whole bunch of things, right? You could okay. use it to, um, and there's been cool experiments. There's been an experiment once where somebody tried to see if they'd be useful for throwing to kill animals. Not super How'd useful. That go? I okay. don't think great. <laughs> um, there's been experiments to use them for digging. There's been experiments to use them as cutting tools, which maybe seems a little bit more in our realm of experience for what we think the affordances of a hand axe might be. Yeah. Um, there's been experiments to use them for like chopping up wood, butchery tasks. These are like a wide variety of different things hand, axe, hand axes could have been used for. Okay. Um, the flakes that came off the hand axe to make it into that teardrop shape. Those could also be used as cutting tools. And there's no reason that, you know, Homo erectus making hand axes wouldn't have also used those as cutting tools. But as we move forward in time, core itself becomes less of a tool and the flakes that are coming off the core become kind of the target product. When we're thinking about hand axes, it's usually the hand axe itself that's the target product. Later on, you have the flakes that are coming off the core as the target product. Okay. Um, and these are all you thought as utilitarian or is that like a, like a whole other kettle of fish to be like, they just liked them or like they, they did it like as a, like, you know, like a hobby or a sport or like as something more aesthetic. Well, first of all, I have no idea if there were paleo Olympics, but potentially there was sport involved. I don't, can't speak to that. I have no evidence, but um, I can say that I think we need to think kind of through the ideas of things being either utilitarian or being something else or being aesthetic or being ritual or being culturally important. There's no reason to say why Why not everything. Exactly. Why can't they be utilitarian and everyday something that people are using all the time, but also have really important deep cultural meaning in addition to that. And so I think that that's something to think through what the meanings of these objects might've been in addition to what their sort of more utilitarian function is as well. Is that something that is starting to be considered more? Because like, I I know just in the time that I've studied archaeology, the understandings around what Neanderthals Uh, thought and felt and did have changed significantly is that extending further back up the ladder of of our ancestry to to like think about it's not a ladder it's a metaphor ladder (laughs) so i don't know further down down in the roots of this shrub uh like to see it doesn't work if i don't say um but is it is it extending further back like sort of into the middle stone age and stuff are we think now thinking about our um our uh more removed ancestors as having artistic or spiritual lives like are we thinking about that now I mean, I'm so, thinking about it, but I don't know if people that actually get paid <laughs> to think about it think about it. <laughs> well, this is a deeper time depth and I'm really like, okay. than I personally study, but I okay. can say, I mean, we know that the earliest art is coming from Africa in the middle stone age. You know, you've got the Blombos cave ochre. So we know that there's a deep time to, to artistic expression. We know there's a deep history to kind of symbolic thought is a odd thing to say. And I have to think through that term a little more, but we do know that these, you know, we as a species and our ancestors and our cousins and our other hominid um, relations definitely had some capacity, I would say, to have something beyond themselves and to think, think a little bit more creatively. And so we starting, we do see that 
whether or not people are talking about the um, creative lives of Homo erectus, I haven't seen much talk about that so far. Yeah. And that kind of ties back to when, you know, when stone tool technology shifts from mostly core to, to more of a flake technology, that's always struck me as really, really cool because no, I mean, not only do you have to really know what you're doing in order, like Danielle, you have seen me try to make a stone tool. I do not know what I'm doing and it was relatively unsuccessful, but the idea that you would be able to visualize a shape in your mind and know how to prepare a core so that when you hit it a certain way, you're familiar with the properties of the stone and you can more or less predict or at least hope for a certain shape as a result. Like that definitely speaks to some kind of cognitive ability for, for forethought, for kind of abstract thought, for like projecting a desired result onto the future, sort of the immediate future. So, I mean, that in itself is really cool. Well, and I would say, and also the longer term future of like having to be trained to get to a point where you can mm-hmm. do that. Like you understand, like you mm-hmm. have the cognitive ability and sort of forethought to be like, well, I, I tried this and it looks awful and it doesn't look like what my teachers looks like, but I, I know, I understand. And I trust that if I keep doing it, it will get less awful. And then I can be the teacher eventually. <laughs> oh, now I'm just picturing like a really dejected, like <laughs> early hominin, like, oh, my blades are bad. Some were, <laughs> I, I mean, for sure, some hominids were unskilled, just like some humans are unskilled in various what a beautiful tasks. thought. It, it happens. It oh, happens. I just, great. I really like the thought of like incompetent homo habilis. Just like. For sure. Just, I mean, we. I'm not a handyman. Really good at telling stories, but I'm really terrible at tools. Exactly. That's okay. That's why you have specialization. Uh, exactly. Okay. Um, well, what kinds of questions, because. I have a lot, but what kinds of questions can archaeologists ask about the past when looking at stone tools from a site? Because it's not just, well, they cut things. Yeah. Surely there's more. So you touched on part of it. You know, one thing that we archaeologists will often look at with stone tools, particularly if we're looking at stone tools in deeper times, is to look at cognition. So we can start to tease out what cognitive processes are involved and wrapped around things like Um, making a hand axe versus making a level wall flake, making prepared core technology? Are there different cognitive processes that are needed for these sorts of decision-making that comes with these different types of technologies and these different types of tool-making? So that's one thing that a lot of archaeologists are exploring. In addition to that, we can look at kind of the decision-making processes of people in the past. So using um, techniques like the chaîne opératoire, we can start to pull together what um, individual decisions an individual who might have been making stone tools had. So were they choosing? What types of raw material were they choosing? How did they move the core in their hand? What was the sequence of actions that they did? And how can we see those individual decisions through doing things like trying to reflakes to a core to reconstruct the behavior and the sequence of events that made those stone tools. And then we can also do useware analysis. So we can look at the edges of tools under a microscope to try to identify how they were used in the past um, through comparing them with modern reference collections. So we can ask all sorts of really interesting questions. There's even more. And we can look at spatial analysis to try to figure out densities and areas of where people were flint mapping and all sorts of stuff. And reference collections are sort of someone in a lab made it like made a tool that kind of looks like the tool that you, so that you're not 
you're not smashing. So you're not using archaeological artifacts to... Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I I should have clarified that. As lithic analysts, one thing we do a lot of is experimental archaeology. So we spend a lot of time, many of us, making stone tools and then doing things with them. Sometimes we make stone tools to try to reconstruct the sequence of actions that would be needed in order to make that similar technology. Sometimes we make stone tools so that we can use them for kind of replicative prehistoric tasks, whether that's um, cutting up a potato to make prehistoric French fries or butchering it for dinner. Go on. I know, right? And then we can look at those traces on our experimental tools under microscopes. And we can look at the patterns of fractures, the patterns of striations, and the types of polishes that are on them. So if you butcher a chicken, for example, the types of microscopic traces are going to look different than if you cut up a potato. And so we can then look at those traces that we've created in the present and use them as analogs for traces we might see on archaeological tools. Okay. So a reference collection would be a whole bunch of experimental tools somebody has made. And if you're doing it for use for analysis, have used for these prehistoric-like tasks so that you can compare with your archaeological okay. samples. And so a reference collection is, um, is useful even if we don't know exactly how, because you were talking about sort of trying to figure out like what we use to hand, like do you throw the hand axe, do you like, do you smush things with it like you don't, we don't need to we don't need to know that or or assume that we know that for it to still be useful because you're looking at stuff on sort of a microscopic level and so you know whether you're doing it in a like expert fashion doesn't affect that because i'm just thinking back to as i often do uh the werner herzog documentary in the cave of forgotten dreams and the scene where he's with the guy the experimental archaeologist guy who's like throwing spears and he's not very good at it. And Herzog points this out and, um, and just, and it really, it's sort of, I don't know if he posed the question or if you've like sort of planted the question of just like how, if we don't know what we're doing, I'm not saying you don't know what you're doing when it comes to making stone tools. You're far more expert than I by any stretch. But if we don't know how they did it, can we still, how, how far can we get with, with understanding that? And this is a good faith question. I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions on lithic analysis. It's just something that, that I, I, I've wondered about. Yeah. First of all, I have to say that I am a, not very skilled at making stone tools and be definitely not nearly as good at using those stone tools for various tasks as the people who had made and used stone tools their whole life. And you touch on something that's really key when we're building analogies and sort of the problems with middle range theory as it relates to experimental archaeology. No matter how good we get in the present, we're never going to be as good as the people who lived with this technology, whose parents taught them how to use these technologies and make stone tool technologies, whose kind of whole culture is embedded in these material culture systems that relate to lithics, right? So we can do these experiments in the present, but there's always going to be limitations to our analogies because we're never going to be expert users in the same way that the people who were interested in learning about were. And as long as we're, at least I think, as long as we're very cognizant of that bias and are able to describe what our limitations are, we can still use the analogs in order to think through what people might have been doing in the past. I mean, we've talked about a bit of this in the past, Amber. Um, remember the study we talked about where science, uh, researchers 
uh, made replicas of Neanderthal spears and, and the scientists tried to throw them and they didn't, they went like two feet and they were like, oh, clearly these were thrusting spears and not throwing spears. And right. then, you know, like a dozen years later, someone put those spears in the hand of a trained javelin thrower and they were like, oh, oh, turns out we just can't throw. Absolutely. I've tried to throw an atletal and I am the worst, the absolute worst. <laughs> I, I am no threat to prey with an atletal either. No. It's the reason why I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> By necessity. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would have starved. <laughs> more of a gatherer. Well, we're going to take a very quick ad break and then we have more questions. So nobody go anywhere. Least about Danielle. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Well, we're back and we still have Danielle. Uh, and oh, now, now comes the hard questions. <laughs> This is my favorite question, I think. <laughs> so if you were stranded on an abandoned island with the right kind of raw materials, this is like a survivor type thing where there will be sort of artfully placed. <laughs> Things have been seeded supplies that you for need. you. Yeah. Um, what kind of stone tool would you make and how would you make it? That is a tough question. <laughs> First of all, I was, I was, when you said desert Island, I was preparing my answer to be bagels because that is my desert Island food. And now I realize that really you're talking about stone tools. So, all right. So if we're going <laughs> for why you're here. Yes. Like, all right. Oh, right. <laughs> so if we're going for desert Island stone tools. Oh, it doesn't have to be a desert Island. It doesn't it have to be, be a, a lushly... desert environment. It can be. No, no. Just... Whatever environment you want. And you have whatever flint or obsidian or chert you want. Yeah. So you have great material. What would be your sort of your everyday carry? My everyday carry would be just a flake, I think. Ultimately, the edge of a flake is the sharpest stone tool you're ever going to get. And if you need to cut something, if you need to butcher something, if you need to um, cut up in fruit, if you need to <laughs> cut, up a bagel. cut up a bagel, you can use a, <laughs> a, a fresh cheese on it. <laughs> you can use a flake. It's perfect. I think that those are the most utilitarian tools, which is interesting because we rarely, when we think about lithics, we're thinking about these bifacial projectile points. We're thinking about kind of these retouch tools. We're thinking of things that look really pretty, but in many ways, the simplest tools are sometimes the most useful tools. Yeah. And then you can go on to use that to make, you know, 
a wooden spear, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Exactly. You absolutely to could hunt your bagels. Exactly. Yeah. That's why they have the hole. <laughs> that's how you toast them. You put it in the hole and you hold it oh, over the fire nice. and you get a little toasty. That's nice. It's perfect. That's a really, that's a great point. Not about the bagels, but that's a really great point about how sort of. No, she said flake, not point. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> okay. Um, that's yeah, that it's sort of the most utilitarian, not necessarily the most beautiful. Uh, you know, there's the the ones the 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 stone tools that are made out of basically quartzite, and they're like gorgeous. Uh, and it's like, is that very pretty? What is that doing anything for anyone? Um, that's a, that's a really glad. I think that that's just showing off. That. Yeah, I think so. yeah. Well, sometimes too, that's about raw material constraints. Some, I mean, although you see lithics made out of chert all over the world because there's chert sources all over the world in some areas there's not and sometimes you use what's there so in some places you have only access to say quartz or to quartzite um, to rhyolites things that might not have as sharp edges but they'll still flake in the sort of conchoidal pattern that you want and so yeah sometimes you just have to use use what you got yeah and it's like a lot sharper than anything else you've got available, even if it's not the sharpest. Exactly. So you are currently, Danielle, working at Harana 4, which is an epipaleolithic site in what is today Jordan. So it's I'm totally uh, switching gears. So, okay. First, Wait, what? before that, Harana yes. 4. Can you explain uh-huh. for us what that, what the 4 means and that it's not like a directed video sequel? Yes. Okay. It's not Harana 4 to the streets. It's not Harana 4, the revenge. It is um, initially this area was sur- when it was initially surveyed. The archaeologists who were surveying this region of Jordan, which is um, in the Azraq Basin, which is in the eastern part of the Jordanian um, country, um, in what is now a desert, they found three other sites before they found this particular site. So it became Harana 4 because they had already found Harana 1, 2, and 3. So it really has nothing <laughs> okay. to do with the site itself and everything to do just when it was found. Okay. All right. And then it was um, recorded so- as such. And then just from then on, from that initial survey, the Forever. work just was like, it's it's still this place. Exactly. So it was recorded in Jordan, we all of our surveys and excavations are done um, with permission and with permits from the Department of Antiquities. Mm-hmm. And so it was recorded with the Department of Antiquities with that name. And so that's the name that it has in perpetuity. So uh, who was there? What was life like? What kinds of tools were people making and what did they do with them? That's a great, tell, tell us everything. Complicated, <laughs> a very long answer that I will have to give you. Yeah. <laughs> um, So the people at Harana 4, the site itself dates from about 20,000 to about 18,500 years ago. And the people that were living there were hunter-gatherers. It's a really, really large site with really dense um, material culture deposits. So a lot of sort of accumulation of objects. And because of that, we think it was an aggregation site. So we think that this was a place where hunter-gatherers who would be traveling around the landscape came periodically and quite frequently, it seems, um, in order to gather and to do certain activities together, including hunting a whole bunch of gazelle, um, making stone tools, making bone tools, and um, having other sorts of activities, for example. So to answer, I think that answers the first part of your question. To yes. answer the second part of your question about the stone tools specifically, um, mm-hmm. the Epipaleolithic is a period of time where they're making a lot of microliths. So basically these teeny tiny blades, and they're retouching them into all sorts of interesting geometric shapes. 
So at this particular oh. site, we have ones that just look like teeny tiny blades and then others that look like teeny tiny blades with an oblique end, so sort of an angled end. And then a little bit later in the occupation, they start making what we call trapeze rectangles, which are exactly what they sound like. They're shaped either like little rectangles or little trapezoids. When you say microliths or microblades, can you give me a sense of what size? Like a couple of millimeters, a centimeter? Yeah. That small? I, so are they hafting these? Are they, are, are, do they have really, really good finger thumb grip like how are they using these tiny things yeah they're not tiny people and i i don't know <laughs> how well their grips are but i can say that they are definitely hafting them so they're small okay. they're ranging they're about two and a half centimeters in in length and then about half that much in width so they're they're quite small but there's a range of variability within that um and they're being hafted both as barbs for projectiles. So you can imagine, oh. say, like a wooden shaft that then mm -hmm. has microliths that are hafted into them either as mm -hmm. angled barbs, mm -hmm. um, sometimes as transverse tips. So you would, Ooh, ow. I know you would put a rectangle kind of perpendicular to the end of ow. your spear point. Yeah. It would take a lot of force in order to penetrate into your gazelle, but then would create- Do a lot of damage. Exactly. Yeah, it would create it a pretty big wound, right? So yeah. they're using them for that as well. Um, and then also sort of just along the side, parallel to the, the shaft so that it could create, kind of penetrate better into the animal. So like a sawtooth kind of? Yeah, sometimes like a sawtooth, like little barbs. And then we also have evidence that they're being used as cutting tools as well. So they could have also been, it seems like they're also being used to sort of cut meat and to cut other soft materials. They're pretty multifunctional in many ways. And so this is a, so you're saying it's where people come together and they, they do activities that like, so they don't stay there. These are nomadic populations. These are like, is this just a, a social space? Or is it a seasonal space? It's like, do you have a sense of seasonality um, with, with the site? Yeah, so it's a great question that touches on a lot of big issues around what we mean by mobility and what we mean by sedentism when we talk about these concepts right. as archaeologists. Because when we often think about mobile people, we often think of it in terms of being highly mobile, like small groups of hunter-gatherers who are moving every couple of days. And that's definitely not what's happening here um, and probably not what's happening in many places. It seems like people are staying here for sort of longer periods of time, although we're also definitely getting up and moving. We don't have any evidence of um, breaks in the occupation of the site for the 1500 years that it was occupied. So there's no, there's no, so long. I know there's no layers where nobody was. So in terms of how many people are there at any given time, um, it's very hard to tell, you know, with archaeology, often everything gets kind of time gets conflated. And so yeah. it's hard to, to parcel out kind of individual lived experiences in terms of time. Yeah. But we do have at the site, um, the earliest evidence of houses for this, uh, for Jordan. So people are investing some time in terms of building yeah. houses and building structures. And the, the sort of communal nature of the activities that are being done, does that speak to sort of uh, social cohesion or society or like, a sense of kinship, is that something that you have any lens into or is this something that like at this resolution with this much time it, like into the past, like is it something that is kind of just in the realm of conjecture or or is there something to be said for 
community, capital C community. I think there is definitely something to be said for capital C community. This is a persistent place on the landscape. People are continually coming back to it over and over and over again. And we're seeing really interesting patterns of different types of lithics that are found at different types of sites around the region, all kind of at this particular place. So we're finding rectangles. We're finding things that look more like little half moon shapes. We're finding things that look like triangles. We're finding different types of tools that you might find in different regions all at the site. So seems like people are probably coming together at this particular location. And I would say if people are coming together, there must be some sense of community. Otherwise, why would you, why would you be there? That at the, for yeah. 1500 years that, you know, you could have, have roots a good there spot. or. Exactly. Okay. It is um, going back to the same vacation home every summer. Exactly. And we do have some isotope evidence to suggest that people are there sort of in kind of year ish round with some breaks. So it's not just that they're coming during the summer. We've got some sort of fall, winter. We've also got some spring, summer. So there seems like there's people are constantly coming back. Some snowbirds. Exactly. Exactly. I have um, one more follow on question to our conversation about Harana. Um, and that is, what is it like excavating there? Because like, I, I mean, I don't have the greatest appreciation for like, uh, not in like a negative way. Like I don't understand uh, necessarily sort of what it's like um, excavating um, an epipaleolithic site or, or anything that's sort of like, I, I worked in sort of the iron age and the bronze age. Like there's like stuff that you can find, even I could find. Um, so what's it like excavating tiny, tiny bits of rock from a Oh, kind of rocky desert like what's that like I love it it's fantastic yeah. so I've been excavating in Harana Forest since 2008 with my co-director Lisa Mahar and we go every summer except for the last two clearly pandemic but hopefully wow. coming up we'll be going back again the resolution of the deposits at the site is very very fine-grained some of our stratigraphy is only a few centimeters in depth and because it's so fine-grained and we're often excavating things like the remnants of grass houses that we have or brush houses that we have at the site, um, which are very sort of detailed, we'll often um, be excavating not with trowels, but with spoons. So we spend a lot of time carefully spooning dirt into tiny bags from the desert. It sounds crazy, but it's amazing. That sounds very meditative. It is meditative in in some capacity. It's also pretty hot. So it helps I keep know. you, you helps keep summer, you that's grounded. Oof. That's <laughs> um it's really cool about the the grass huts though. Yeah. The, like are they reed, reeds? Right? Yeah, so we from like marsh reeds. Yeah, one of our specialists, uh, Monica Ramsey's does um Phytolith analysis. So she's done some really wonderful phytolith work trying to reconstruct what these houses would have been made out of. So although mm -hmm. I should say, although Harana is currently in a desert, at the time of occupation, it was actually a really lush wetland. So these houses are being made out of the wetland resources that would have been available in the local environment for the hunter-gatherers that were living there at the time. Oh, that's why you go keep going back for 1,500 years. Exactly. Got, it was beautiful. everything you want. Yep. Yeah. You've got all sorts of wild animals. You've got water sources. You've got amazing raw materials. It would have been a beautiful location. When are, do you, are you able to, is one able to plot these houses by where there is grass residue, residue. Uh, where there isn't like are, is there are you 
able to have a sense of like, there's a lot over here, there's none over here, or is it sort of like this house or neighborhood map? A meter. And then four meters away, there was another house. Like, is that, is that what we're able to do? And is that happen in the lab? Not necessarily in sort of survey the way that you would be able to find like stone or mud brick foundations? Like, are you, are you able to find foundations? So maybe the best way to answer that question is to tell you a little bit about the life history of the house themselves. So to date, we found um, three, possibly four house structures at the site, two of which we've excavated. And the way that these houses were constructed is it seems like they were a very shallow pit was dug into the underlying deposits, which the underlying deposits actually are just filled with artifacts. So they would have been digging into these underlying deposits that have artifacts. And then they're laying down a compact uh, dirt floor, living on that compact dirt floor, leaving a couple artifacts behind. And what's really interesting is that they are not leaving a lot of artifacts behind outside the houses. It's just piles of garbage, tons of lithic debris, tons and tons of animal bones, but inside the houses, it's a few kind of larger pieces of animals and some larger stone tools, but not a lot of small debris. So it doesn't seem like they're doing any flint napping in the houses. Yeah. They're not doing um, the types of activities. No flint napping in the house. Exactly. It's messy, right? Do you want to keep that stuff outside? For each of the houses we've excavated, they've laid down subsequent floors. So after a while, they put down fresh dirt it gets compacted as well. They live on that. For the um, structure number one, we have three overlaying floors. And for structure two, I think it's two overlaying floors. Okay. Then at the end, when they're decided that they no longer want to live in that house, for both the structures we've excavated, they basically burned the upper superstructure. So they burned the roof and collapsed the house in on itself. And then they buried it with sand. And so we're able to find them because we're able to find these circular footprints basically of where the houses were burned. Okay. That makes it sound possible to me because like, other than <laughs> what you were describing, I was just like, how is anyone finding this? Well, I, okay. I understand. And that also, is that like a primary way that you're able to like analyze the plant remains because they've been Because they've been burned. Exactly. Yes, okay. exactly. All right. All right, good. I feel like I'm getting my participation grade. <laughs> I'm just like, Aww. I'm with you. Um, okay, thank you. This is, yeah, this is amazing. Um, it's a really cool site. We will include links to the publications on it. Yeah, that would be amazing. We also have a project website. I'll send you the link. Yes. And, and we will link we to will that include on that in show notes. notes. Um, okay, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, we're not done. We're not done. I'm just, I'm excited. Um, more hard questions. What is, or are, uh, the coolest stone tool or tools you've ever seen and why? Um, and you, not but for sentimental value. You can't say yours. Uh, or maybe you can. I don't know. I, I shouldn't be putting rules on this question. Um, and they don't have to be from your area of study. This could be something like totally off the wall, or I guess not even ancient. What's the by, by far the coolest stone tools are not the ones I'm finding at my site. I mean, they are really, <laughs> really cool, but the they're coolest, yours. Well, they, you don't own them, but they, 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 they're the I ones feel, that you feel closest to. I, I understand exactly, to the antiquities I have, department. I have an affinity to them, but yes, they yes. do belong to the Jordanian government. That said, the coolest stone tools for sure made anywhere are Mayan eccentrics. 
So uh, I, know. I was wondering if you would say of that. Of course, Mayan eccentrics. Who? The the, the Mayan Amber, people. let me text you. Let me text you some pictures. <laughs> the Mayan people made the most remarkable stone tools that have ever been made by anybody anywhere. And the what they did, I mean, they have your regular um, blades and things like that, but they have these phenomenal chipped stone tools or chipped stone artwork, I really should say, yeah. that look like um, scorpions are designed like multiple um, figureheads in um, profile. They are um, other sorts of animals. They're geometric designs. They're absolutely phenomenal. The craftsmanship that went into making these particular objects is definitely a lost art. And so those are by far and away the coolest stone tools okay. ever made. And these are like Anna sending me photos. So maybe Anna knows these are like classic Maya. Like, is this something that is sort of from, or, or is this something more recent? I don't know. These are so cool. No, it's, it's ancient. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. Uh, how, how ancient? Well, no, I like. No, no, I I think it's associated with classic Maya. It is classic Maya. Yeah. I don't know the the details, and I don't want to wade into Mayan archaeology because it's definitely outside my area of expertise. I don't know the details of exactly when they date to, but yes, these are archaeological. No, they're classic Maya pieces. Absolutely phenomenal. And if you haven't checked them out, everybody should Google Mayan eccentrics right now because they're amazing. They look like. H.R. Giger kind of stuff. They look like xenomorphs. Like it's sort of, they sort of, yeah, there's a lot of legs and like, yeah, I just like fun, the funky edges. The, this, oh, beautiful. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I can't imagine Ooh. like, you know, you'd know you'd get to like the second to last final little fl- flake that you needed to break off and then like a whole piece would snap off. Ah, that's what would happen to me. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're beautiful. And the level of, of work that went into them. You're right. I mean, you really have to be an expert, expert plant mapper to make these. Yeah. These are probably, they were probably pressure flaked, right? That's different from, from percussion flaking. Excuse me. So that's correct. Well, we have an expert, so maybe, maybe I'll shut my mouth. So what is this? What's happening? (laughs) There's lots of different ways that you can make stone tools. And so the way that we often think about is methods of direct percussion, which is where you hold your core in one hand and in your other hand, you have some sort of hammer. You can have what we call a hard hammer, which would be another stone that is um, less brittle than the core that you are going to be striking. Or you can have a soft hammer, which is by its name softer than a stone. So usually something like an antler or something like a um, hard piece of wood, although antler is probably the most common And with direct percussion, you literally take your core, you take your hammer, and you hit the hammer to the core. I make it sound easy. Smack the thing with the thing. Exactly. But there's all sorts of angles that you need to consider as well. So it's not just hit two rocks together and make some beautiful stone tools. But it's hard hard to describe verbally when I, without... Um, on the we'll, on a podcast. Um, link to some videos. Perfect. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Okay. So that's percussion. <laughs> that's, per, that's direct percussion. Then you can have indirect percussion. Oh boy. I when know. You drop it. We're, that's another way. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a second. With oh, indirect gosh. percussion, you have a hammer, you have your core, and then in between the hammer and core, you have some sort of mediating object like the end of a piece of antler. And so you put your antler on your core and your hammer, you hit the end of the antler and the force travels through the antler to remove a flake. 
sort of like hitting a chisel, but you're not, you're not cut, you're not biting into the rock, but in the same way that it transfers okay. force to the pointed end. Exactly. Doing that. That's okay. a great analogy. It's exactly like okay. using a chisel. And what that allows you to do is it's a lot more, uh, where you're removing the flake from is highly controlled. So when you can okay. imagine if you're just swinging a hammer, you kind of, you know where you want it to go, but it's not the exact spot. If you have, um, your indirect percussion, if you've got say a piece of antler to, um, put the force in exactly the part of the core that you want to remove. So you've got direct percussion, indirect percussion, and then we have pressure flaking, which is where you where have you squeeze it. Exactly. Just push it. You, you take some sort of fine tipped pressure flaker. It can either be the end again, antler, super good for flint mapping. It can be the end of a tip of an antler an antler tine. It can also be copper and copper was very commonly used both um, in prehistoric North America. And then also, you know, we use it all the time now for modern flint mappers, copper, that's sort of a co thick copper wire that's chiseled into a point. And then you press your pressure flaker against the edge of your flake really, really, really hard. And you'll take off a tiny, beautiful little flake. It's the most controlled method that you can use. And it allows you to make artifacts it's like so hard. so hard. You can make beautiful, beautiful artifacts, though, like Mayan eccentrics or bifacial projectile points you see all over North America. And so this isn't like an either or technology. This is this is something that um, depending on who and where and when and what they're making it out of, you may like get like your big one to knock off some chunks and then your indirect to sort of get a little bit. And then you like you can do the detail That's work with pressure. Flaking. Kind of the idea of the whole Chen operatoire thing, which is like the typology for all of this was first developed in France, which is why all the terms are yes. in French. So you get to you sound very French and fancy. But the, the shen up, yeah, like all of the steps that that okay. happened getting from raw material to finished tool. Okay, the shen operatoire. Absolutely, and you're right, that, Amber. You can use and often do use direct percussion and then other methods as well. So direct percussion, then pressure flaking, for example. It's not a good use of your time or energy to be like <laughs> tink tink. It would like off of like something the size of your off head. of an entire chunk of flint. <laughs> exactly. No, don't do that. Yeah, that would be terrible. That would be absolutely terrible. I forgot to mention the coolest way too is the punch technique. So you, it's another type of indirect percussion where you have um, a long stick that you press against your chest, and you uh -huh. have your core that's in a vice, and you use your full body weight pressing against <gasps> this like. Um, so I make it sound you would have like a pad on the end of the what, stick, right, so it's yeah. not stabbing okay, into cool. your into your chest or anything. But you, you use your body weight to press against it to remove a flake, and that allows like, you because you're using so much force, the whole force of your yeah. body. It allows you to take off these amazing giant, super long blades. So if you're making super long blades using the punch technique like that, is amazing. Let's find a video of that. There's I, definitely I a video for future me. So why are we having like these like axe throwing parties and like axe throwing bars when we could be having blade making, blade making bars? Because I like I suit me up. I want to make because someone would break a rib. I guess like the you know axe throwing parties, someone could get hurt pretty bad too. So you know, pick your battles. Uh, I guess. All right. Well. Okay, I'm going to set aside my business idea. We can absolutely have flint napping parties. Yes. Bring oh, this your is own goggles. Eye protection is very important. Um, well, now that we are all three of us experts on how stone tools are produced, um, when you, you the archaeologist, are, are looking at 
the stone tools made by a particular group of people or kind of changes in stone tools over time. What can stone tool technology tell us about human innovation and, and problem solving? So for example, what did prehistoric people do when there weren't good sources of stone around them? Because you said, you know, you don't always live near where the, the good flint is and you have like quartz, which doesn't break the way you want it to. So internet shopping is not an option. What do you do? So people use whatever's available for them. So sometimes people are flaking things like basalt, which flakes, it doesn't flake super well, but you might use it anyways. Um, and we also have to remember, I know we talked about this a bit earlier, but we have to remember that there's a whole other suite of material culture that people were using in the past that doesn't preserve in the archaeological record. So it could be that we're missing all sorts of activities and all sorts of tools that people were making out of bone and out of mm -hmm. stone, out of uh, wood that aren't actually in the archaeological record. So a lot of that innovation is happening in other types of materials as well. But you do see people using all sorts of inventive types of stones in order to make stone tools. Being able to get a sharp and durable edge for cutting is something that people kind of need across prehistory and across history even. So until you have the use of metals, people are using stones that are in their local environment. Sometimes you'll also find communities who will carry stones. So if they're living in areas that doesn't have access to a lot of good nappable raw materials, they'll import raw materials from other places. So they'll travel either them moving with the stones or trading for stones. Um, moving stones around the landscape so they still have access to raw materials. And I've I've seen examples of um, bone used as a material that's flaked and then used as a as a cutting tool or a scraping tool. Absolutely. Be. Shells are also used yeah. as well. So sort of yeah. large bivalve shells have been used as cutting tools to get really nice sharp edges. Oh I yeah. Have cut myself on yep. Just like that makes barefoot on a beach. Yep. Ow. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Okay. Humans are versatile. So creative. It's nice. It's nice to feel feel that way sometimes to think about people in the past and go, nah, we have potential. <laughs> uh, let's ponder that. Should we take one more quick little ad break and then get to our final and most difficult questions? Yeah, yeah you thought the desert island one was hard. It wasn't a Watch desert out. island. There were bagels. <laughs> Welcome to Bagel Island. That's my type of island. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our T Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high quality t shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and T Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. Well, we're back. Here on Bagel Island, be an atoll, I think, because there's a hole in the middle. A bagel atoll. Yeah. Um, huh. So, Danielle. Yes. What is your favorite thing about anthropology? 
That is a hard question. <laughs> there's so much, we know. there's so much to love. I think in part, one of my favorite things is the process of discovery. And that for me, the ability to learn new things and to learn about our own history, our own deep history, our own evolution. And the fact that we're constantly learning new things, whether it's through doing new excavations, whether it's through diving deeper into museum collections, whether it's through you know thinking through new theories and new ways of interpreting the archeological record that we already have access to, this kind of constant process of discovery and learning is one of the most amazing things about archeology. span I also really love thinking through the diversity of the ways that people live in the past and the present. So sort of understanding how we as humans have such open and creative human behavior that we can do so many different things and have so many different ways of being, organizing our kinship systems, organizing our economies, organizing our, our lives, our own understandings of the world and our general worldviews. The fact that there's so much diversity, that for me, I find so exciting. Great answer. Here comes the other one. If you could be a fly on the wall for any moment in human history or prehistory or any moment in the development of anthropology as a discipline, what would you choose? I'm going to be super boring with this question because I'm going to say the That's cool. the Epipaleolithic. I think about it so uh, specifically much. Specifically at Hirana? Yes, like- I just, I want to know, right? I spent so much time studying it and coming up with all these hypotheses about who these people were, what they did, um, how they organized themselves, what their beliefs were. And I would just, if I could, I would just love to go and ask them myself. I'd love to be a time traveling cultural anthropologist in addition to being an archaeologist. That's what you get for watching Star Trek. I do watch a lot of Star Trek. <laughs> I don't think we've actually had that many people choose that. And many guests say, like, I specifically want to go back to the thing I research and just look around and be like, oh, interesting. Danielle, is there anything you'd like to plug or tell folks about before we wrap up? You can check out our website and learn a little bit more about Harana. We've got links to articles on the website. Um, I've got an upcoming book with a colleague on hunter-gatherer houses It's an edited volume where we're looking at um, how hunter-gatherers, mobile hunter-gatherers lived in the built environment, how they made houses all across the world and all throughout time. So if you're interested in learning more about houses and hunter-gatherers, that'll be coming out, I think, in August 2022. Okay, sweet. If you're really into homesteading, pick up some inspiration there. Absolutely. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Prehistoric homesteading. Thank you so much, Danielle, for talking with us. I feel equipped now to speak slightly more knowledgeably about any stone tool stuff that comes up. Maybe. Great. I hope. Thank I, you. I feel empowered to ask more questions. So Excellent. I always happy to answer questions and thank you so much for having me. It was great to be able to talk with you guys about stone tools. Yeah. Yay. And thank you listeners for listening. We will be back in your ears next week with a new episode. Until then, you can find us on social media where we recently posted the first registration info for an upcoming live show. That's right. We're doing another live virtual recording of the show in conjunction with International Archaeology Day. It's going to be at 4 p.m. Eastern on October 16th. So mark your calendars and register for free to join. We will have more posts coming up on all of our social medias so that you can uh, click on it to register. But back to those socials. On Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And all of that 
plus merch where we will have new designs dropping soon. The link to our Patreon uh, if you want to sponsor an episode and so much more. Some news coming um, over at our website, Mm. thedirtpod.com. Thanks, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.